Hello, everyone. Welcome to Historically Black, a production of APM Reports and The Washington Post. I'm Michelle Norris. In 2016, the Smithsonian Institution opened its National Museum of African American History and Culture on the Mall in Washington, D.C. When the museum's curators began their work, they believed that many of the artifacts, documents, and treasures that would reveal the story of African Americans were secreted in basements, attics, garages, and storage trunks. Items with high monetary value might be in the hands of collectors, but the curators had a hunch that many with great significance were still undiscovered because many museums have overlooked black history. Their hunch was right. The curators have collected more than 40,000 items with some 3,500 on view at any time. Objects include a slim, handmade tin box that protected the freedom papers of an emancipated slave, shards of stained glass from the 16th Street Baptist Church bombed in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, and a racket used by tennis champion Althea Gibson. In covering the museum opening, the Washington Post invited people across the country to submit photos of objects that represent their own personal and family connections to black history. People sent photos of all kinds of things, a fabric doll from the 1830s, a poll tax exemption receipt from 1898, ancient love letters. Love is the topic we'll explore later in the show, but first, a number of people who submitted an item to the Post talked about how their story of black history is really about racial identity. These are people who identify themselves as black or African-American and something else, such as African or Native American. Each one has had to ask themselves at one time or another, who am I and what does it mean to be black? And they've had to answer questions asked by others as well. A lot of times I'm asked like, oh, you're like, you're really pretty. What do you mix with? I don't have ties to American slavery. I don't have ties to the South. So I would not define myself as African-American. I would define myself as Black. Racial identity in the U.S. is inherently complicated. Jelani Cobb, who's an historian and staff writer for The New Yorker, says the reason the idea of race is so messy is because it's an invented category, one rooted in slavery. Or the most kind of basic understanding is the one drop rule, wherein people said if a person had any drop of black blood, they were black. And the purposes of that were to present whiteness as a category of purity and that any tincture of African ancestry would irrevocably taint a person and remove them from the pure category of whiteness. I had a classmate come up to me in college and told me that you talk white, you look white, you're not black enough to be my friend. I think when people say that someone's not black enough, they're almost exclusively talking about culture and group allegiance and group identity. And it's rarely used pejoratively in terms of someone's ancestry, precisely because the overwhelming majority of people who fall into the category of black in the United States have white ancestry. And someone was like, are you adopted? And I was like, no, it's my mom. And they were like, but she's white. And I was like, yeah, because she's my mom. Like, that's the color that she is. And they were like, yeah, but you're not white. And I was like, oh, got it. There's a wide range of ancestries that are included within the category of black. And so the category itself is amorphous. In this episode, narrated by writer Roxane Gay, we're going to feature four women who've taken on the amorphous category of race and tried to define an identity on their own terms. First up, Marcel Hutchins. The object Marcel submitted to Historically Black is a black and white photograph of her mother, who is from Cameroon. The year is 1989. She is cradling Marcel and her twin sister when they were infants. The young mom has a radiant smile as she holds one tiny girl in each arm. When Marcel was eight years old, she became critically ill and was flown from Cameroon to Portland, Maine for open-heart surgery. Her mother saw better opportunities in Maine and decided to raise her daughters there. She married a white man and the family settled in Bar Harbor. Marcel's biological father is Cameroonian, but Marcel says her white stepdad is her real father. She considers his side of the family her family, too. 
Still, Marcel was sometimes unsure about where she fit in. Growing up, I really struggled with my identity in America. For a long time, I questioned who I was in this, in this world. And I was told by a variety of different people that I didn't fit my birthright, that um, I didn't act the way I should act or the way black people should act. And because of my mannerism, I was too white. I started out being really an exhibit to my classmates in third grade. People didn't really know what Africans do. They assumed that Africans swing from branch to branch, which was a question I was asked. They asked me if my families hunt lions, if we kill elephants. I've never seen an elephant, I've never seen a lion, so to me it was really bizarre. High school, college is where um, people started uh, questioning my blackness. I tried really hard to be someone that I don't think I was, but I wanted I wanted respect from the black community. I had a classmate come up to me in college and told me that you talk white, you look white, you're not black enough to be my friend. And it had a, a negative, negative impact on my life for a long time. I remember this one time I um, we went to a party in college and we were maybe like the only three, there was like three black girls at the party. And um, somebody had asked us to have a dance off me and her. And so uh, I didn't want to, honestly, it just it, I didn't want to have a dance off. I wanted to just have a conversation with her and not be awkward about it. And I don't think she knows Africans know how to dance. <laughs> when music starts playing, don't touch me. I just went full out and I was declared the winner. And um, she like had respect for me after that. And it was the strangest thing. You know, like the following week, she started being a little nicer to me. You know, she started saying, hey, like, good dance. Like, I love the way you dance on that dance floor. Like, you really have that blackness in you. And I should have been offended, but I think I really wanted to be her friend. I'm really involved with Black Lives Matter. And so I've been a little outspoken um, with everything that was going on in the news. And a lot of my social media posts tend to be about, you know, racism in America and police brutality and just things that are happening in black communities. And my mom said to me, you know, somebody, I'm not gonna say who, in your family thinks you're turning your back on your white family. I just laughed and I got really pissed off <laughs> because I felt like I spent a good chunk of my life, my life trying to defend my white family and now, I'm being questioned whether or not I truly love my white family because I'm talking about racial injustice in America and I'm trying to make people understand. And so is that me turning my back on my white family? Ever since then, I've just really stopped posting more things about things that are happening in Black communities. Today, Marcel Hutchins is a multimedia journalist in Boston. Christina Tucker grew up in New Paltz, New York, a predominantly white town in the Hudson Valley. Christina's father is African-American. Her mother is white. The object Christina submitted to Historically Black is a jovial Santa Claus that tops her family's Christmas tree each year. He is a black Santa, one of many brown figures that Christina's white mom found over the years to decorate the family home. My brother and I have stocking angel hangers, and they're both brown. Um, she has a bunch of other brown Santas. She found somewhere a brown Mary and Jesus and switched out the white Mary and Jesus that her family's nativity set had. And they are like three times the size of the rest of the nativity scene, but she was like, nope, black Mary and black Jesus, that's who's going in. Christina says her mom was trying to give her children an image of themselves that wasn't necessarily reflected in the community around them. Christina feels it was a great thing to do, but she still grew up with some confusion about race. For me, what I saw as normal, what I saw as accepted was still whiteness. So I still kind of felt an unease and a discomfort in figuring out what my blackness meant to me, what I thought black people were, what I thought I should be as a black person. 
I remember very clearly in fourth grade, I dressed as Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter for Halloween. And a bunch of my classmates were like, well, you can't be McGonagall because you're black. And I was like, what? Yeah, I know I'm like a different color, but like, why couldn't I be this, you know, fictional character who means the world to me? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I think that was like the first moment that I was like, okay, so blackness is a different and be something that has shut me out of access to something that I care about deeply. I think that was kind of the first moment that I felt that in life. Uh, That was one of the first moments. I think actually the first moment was my mom came to pick me up from gymnastics when I was like in kindergarten or first grade. And someone was like, are you adopted? And I was like, no, it's my mom. And they were like, but she's white. And I was like, yeah, because she's my mom. Like, that's the color that she is. And they were like, yeah, but you're not white. And I was like, oh, got it. Having more friends of color was really the linchpin in um, figuring out kind of my racial identity for myself. We used to have Friday night hangouts and we would just kind of talk about, you know, the ways white people tried us during the week and like what we felt exhausted by. And I think that was kind of having a community and having a space to voice those things and say like, oh, this was like a weird conversation I had with somebody at work and then be like, yeah, that was some white people nonsense. That's just what white people are like. I think all of my friends feel this kind of way that we are often the only people of color in a room. We're the only people who are kind of held up like, oh, you know, we're diverse because of these people. And I think it's only been recently that I've felt comfortable kind of pushing back against that status quo. I remember I was in a meeting and it was me and a bunch of women and like white women and some white men. And someone said like, oh, well, this is a pretty diverse meeting. And I said, you are welcome. And the whole room was like, oh, right. It's just you. Like, yes. Yeah, it's just me. It's not, we haven't nailed it yet, guys. Like, let's not get too comfortable here. That was Christina Tucker, who works in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. Evie Ani was born in New York City not long after her parents emigrated from Nigeria. The item Ivier contributed to Historically Black was a photograph of her mother as a young professional in Nigeria. She is wearing a brightly colored dress made from traditional Nigerian fabric, along with a matching headband. She just looked like the epitome of style and grace, and she was really young in that photo, and she had a jerry curl. (laughs) Ivier says her family lived in several different parts of New York City when she was growing up. Every community they settled in was predominantly black and brown. College was my first experience with non-black and non-brown people. The most white people I have ever been around in my life was in college. And I knew enough about white culture to be able to function in that world. Because when I got to college, I literally said to myself, this is like TV. Because that's all they show on TV. I was watching Friends. I was watching all of that. I think that helped. I think TV helped a lot. I know that Black people who advance in the career world and just advance in life are sometimes told, oh, you're acting white, or you're acting this. Black kids who do well in school, oh, you're acting white. I didn't get that growing up because everything about me is Black. But the question is, are you African enough, not are you Black enough? Blackness is not a question because I'm also heavily involved in the hip-hop community from birth. Black American culture is a culture in itself, and I don't think it gets recognized as a serious culture, but it really is. And I don't even think they give themselves enough credit for that because they have a, they have their own dialect, their own food, their own attire. They literally have every aspect that a culture needs. And I don't think it's recognized as a main culture in the world when it should be. I do not have ties to generational black people in America. I don't have ties to American slavery. I don't have ties to the South. So I would not define myself as African-American. I would define myself as black, Nigerian-American, Nigerian, but not African-American. My definition of the word black is just an all-encompassing term for 
black people around the world. Whether you're black in Africa, whether you're black in the Caribbean, whether you're black in America, black in Europe, anyone who is black in any part of the world is what black is to me. Any ethnicity, any nationality, your race is black globally. African-American friends who don't want to be called African-American. They want to be called African. Even though they have generational ties to American slavery, they want to denounce the American entirely. And they just want to either be called Black or African. I think the racial tensions between Black and white in America have become so prominent in the last five years that it's propelled Black Americans to want to look outside of America. I think that Black Americans don't want to have anything to do with America at this point. So they're looking for the other. But I, ha I have this conversation a lot with, with African Americans. When I grew up, nobody wanted to be African. It just started being cool, believe it or not. To call someone an African was an insult for such a long time. So I'm just getting used to the fact that it's okay to be African now. That it's almost... I don't want to say it's trendy now, but it is really popular. And it's amazing because this is literally my first time being in a world that's accepting Africanness. I'm lucky and I'm privileged to know where I come from because I know it hurts black people so much to not know where they come from, to not know what country their family originates from, to not know what tribe their family originates from. I'm so lucky to have that in my household. Iviani is a freelance journalist in New York City. <laughs> Kiana Jay was born in New Mexico. She was raised by a single mother who was Native American, part Oglala Sioux and part Athabascan. Kiana's mother was a social worker and died when Kiana was 18 years old. Kiana submitted photographs of two family heirlooms to Historically Black. One is a small silver bracelet decorated with turquoise. The other is a cradle board, a traditional baby carrier used by Native peoples. My mom carried me in that cradle board, and it was from there that I watched her interact with the world. It was from there that I got my first up-high perspective. As a child, Kiana lived in a small village in northern New Mexico and then in Albuquerque. Her father was black. She barely knew him. I was always being told, especially once I started school, like, oh, you're black, you're black. Little kids, like, telling me I was black or that I was African-American. And I didn't really agree <laughs> at that age even. I would have described myself pretty strictly as Native American. My mom, she has this long, dark raven hair. It's beautiful, straight, thick. And I remember wishing so badly that my hair would lay down that way instead of stick up how it did. And wishing that when I was walking with my mom that people would know. I wanted so badly for people to know that she was my mom because I knew how different we looked. Everywhere I went, I stood out. I didn't have a lot of TV growing up, and so I wasn't watching movies, I wasn't watching things that really exposed me at all to Black culture or Black people, and I didn't have Black people around me. I didn't have that sort of representation, so it's not one that I took on myself, but as I got older, got into high school, started taking in more culture, I sort of thought, okay, maybe I, I look like that. I look Black, but I'm not. This is how I appear, but it's not, it doesn't match the inside. And then I moved to Los Angeles and got more active on Tumblr. I'd made a post about something that I learned in school, and all of a sudden there was the support of Black Tumblr. I didn't even know what it was. It was not an, an audience that I was trying to reach. And so that really got the ball rolling here in Los Angeles and realizing there's this whole community, there's this whole community of support that I didn't even know I had. 
Native culture can be very exclusive. And I think to fully belong to it growing up, I had to be totally absorbed by it. But black culture is much more accepting of people who even might kind of belong to it. I was being embraced as an equal almost immediately. All I had to do was be there and it's so comfortable and I thought, wow, I've really been missing out. I've really been missing out on an entire culture, entire history. It made me really sad that I didn't grow up with my dad and that side of my family because I think I would have not felt so alone. Because it was hard. It was hard not looking like anybody that I grew up with. I have several half-siblings, and we share a dad, and I'm very close with them. They all live in Southern California as well. And walking around with my sisters, <laughs> we all look very similar. We're all, um, you know, tan girls with crazy big curly hair. And walking with them for the first time was indescribable. I felt for the first time like I really belonged somewhere. A lot of times I'm asked like, oh, you're like, you're really pretty. What are you mixed with? Being asked, what are you? Is very irritating to me. It's very, very irritating because it makes me feel like a spectacle. It's the same thing if people ask if they can come up and touch my hair. That happens every day. And that makes me feel like a pet. It's usually white people, but sometimes it's black people, which, of course, I feel less upset about. It's it's not as, like, dehumanizing, I guess. I already feel like I have more in common with them, and so I feel less... I just feel less annoyed. I've had conversations with white people where I've been told, oh, but you're only you're only half black, right? And I say, oh, well, I guess I can only have half of an opinion about this. I think it's not so much that I only feel half the pain of each culture, it's a, or half the joy of each culture. I feel all the pain and all the joy from both sides. And so I just, I pretty much just refuse to be made to choose. That's Kiana Jay. Kiana works as a behavioral specialist in Los Angeles County Schools. She is also a songwriter and model. Race is an invented category, but one that shapes a person's life and opportunities in the United States, along with social acceptance and self-perception. Writer Jelani Cobb says that as long as race remains a salient factor in American life, we need to keep talking about it. We can't just kind of take a detour and say, oh, great, you know, we were able to uh, find a road that took us around this racial issue. I think it's something that we have to go directly into uh, if we have any hope of ever coming out of it. That story was narrated by Roxane Gay. I'm Michelle Norris, and this is Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. Coming up, Black love stories and why we don't see more of them in popular culture. I stood outside the doorway because this was a young man who had on a beautiful cashmere sweater and argyle socks. And I met him at the door and introduced myself because I thought he was from a family that had money because he was so well dressed. But come to find out, he wasn't. <laughs> to hear all of the episodes in our Historically Black series, visit our website, apmreports.org. You can see photos from the project and explore a timeline that shows where these stories fit in American history. That's apmreports.org. Our program continues in just a moment from APM, American Public Media. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Michelle Norris, and this is Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. Quick recap. In 2016, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture opened to much fanfare and acclaim. 
Museums play a critical role in constructing collective memory, in this case, turning the country's gaze toward a history it might otherwise choose to forget. Slavery was sanctioned by law in America for more than two centuries. It has shaped almost every aspect of American life, and yet it does not hold a place of primacy in America's historical canon. From slavery to segregation to soaring victories, this new museum in Washington takes an unflinching look at the travails and triumphs of African Americans. To mark the museum's opening, the Washington Post invited people across the country to submit photos of objects that represent their own personal and family connection to black history. This program features some of those objects and the stories behind them. Our next chapter is narrated by Tracy Clayton and Heben Nagatu, hosts of the popular podcast, Another Round. And as always, we begin with an object. My name is Gavro Robinson, and the object I submitted to Historically Black is my mom and dad's wedding photo. My mom is in her wedding gown, and my dad is in a suit with the ascot looking very dapper. I'm Tracy Clayton. I'm having a got to. Gavril Robinson is a writer who lives in Clemson, South Carolina. Her parents were married in 1957, and they recently celebrated their 59th wedding anniversary. Gavril says she submitted the photograph to Historically Black because of what she doesn't see enough in popular culture. Images of black couples in loving, long-term relationships. Her grandparents were married for nearly 70 years. All my sisters and brothers are married. I have so many friends who have been married for decades. And, you know, I just wanted to show that photo, show my truth as well as my friends and other people I knew. Gabriel is 52 years old now and grew up watching TV shows like Good Times and The Jeffersons. She says that those programs and later ones like The Cosby Show depicted married black couples who loved each other. She says she rarely sees that now. Now, if you do see a black couple, they're at each other's throats. And if you don't really know any better, you would believe that that's the reality across the board when it really is not. Tracy, you know how I'd be watching white people family dramas? Yes. There are zero things like that for black people. Mm. You have Blackish, which is a very popular show, but it's a comedy. Right. It's a comedy. There's just nothing quite like your parenthood version for a black family. Right. Or six feet under. So Gavril wants to see exactly that. The black version of a full-on epic drama like Parenthood, which follows a white family, the Bravermans. Like, instead of the Bravermans, they're like the Benjamins or something like that. Now, some might argue that TV features more diverse black families than ever in history, and that movies and popular fiction are the places where multidimensional black representation goes to die. But regardless, Gavril was one of many people who submitted items to Historically Black to highlight the existence of committed, loving relationships among African Americans. One person sent in a photo of her great-grandparents' wedding rings. Another person sent in a raft of love letters written between her great-grandfather and great-grandmother in the 1890s. And another, who we'll hear from in a moment, sent in wedding photographs from both her and her husband's family. In this episode, we will explore the history and meaning of marriage among African Americans. We'll talk about why stable Black relationships aren't seen a lot in popular culture. And we'll look closely at a couple of real-life love stories, portraits, if you will, of two very different but equally powerful bonds. Let's get into it. My name is Paula Pennebrit, and I submitted a series of family photographs depicting marriages both from my family and my husband's family. Both of us come from families where people have had lifelong marriages since as long as black people in America have been legally permitted to marry. Paula Penn Nabrit lives in Columbus, Ohio and runs a management consulting firm. She was married for more than 30 years and raised three boys with her husband, Charles Nabrit. He passed away in 2013. The photographs Paula submitted included the wedding of her grandparents in 1928 and of her in-laws in 1945. Paula submitted these photos because, like Gavril Robinson, she believes they contradict the common image of dysfunctional Black families often featured in popular media. 
my experience as a black person doesn't match up with what's depicted in terms of black families. And I was glad that I had photographic evidence of parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents and what their actual experience has been living in the United States. One big piece of that actual experience has been entering into stable, long-term marriages. My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother were all married for the entirety of their lives to really, really strong, very present black men. Studies show that fewer and fewer American families look like the nuclear families that Gavril and Paula grew up in. This is even more so the case among African Americans who are less likely to marry than any other racial group in the U.S. One statistic. In 2012, 36% of black people 25 and older had never been married compared to 16% of white people. African Americans also have a higher rate of poverty than other groups. And we know financial pressures are always hard on a marriage. I think it is an easy out for people to presume that marriage is something for middle class and upper middle class people. But historical analysis really debunks that because in point of fact, black people have been questing to marry even when marriage was not legally recognized among black people. For Paula, the fact that marriage among Black people was not always legal makes marriage among African Americans today even more meaningful. So let's take a moment to talk about the history of Black marriage during slave times. Dinah Ramey Berry, a historian at the University of Texas, Austin, studies Southern slavery. She says that although it was not technically legal for slaves to marry, many did so anyway. Sometimes they had the slave master's permission, and sometimes they didn't. These ceremonies could be as formal, um, where they're exchanging vows, they're reading scriptures from the Bible. And at other times, the bride and groom might jump the broom, a ritual where the couple literally hops over a broom to seal their wedding vows. Then you also have people that just did a private ceremony under a tree. They might have exchanged what little possession they had. It may or may not have been a piece of jewelry. It could have been a button. It could have been a certain type of rock or stone or what have you. Some people exchanged nothing. They just held hands and they said, we're husband and wife. Many enslaved people were not allowed to marry partners of their choice. For instance, enslavers often picked certain men and women to reproduce with each other if the slave master thought they were strong field laborers. Now, there are a number of other enslaved people who were denied marital relationships with somebody who they loved because the owner was using the the woman as a sexual partner or concubine. Rape was a grim reality of slavery, as was the constant threat of being sold away from one's family. Married couples always faced the prospect of being separated permanently and losing their children. The average enslaved person was sold about four times in a lifetime, which meant many marriages were destroyed when one person was auctioned off. People who were enslaved often had a string of marriages that occurred as spouses were torn from each other. Some people chose never to marry. They wanted to be spared the loss. For those that that wanted to be a part of a family and to use the family as a survival mechanism and for support and for love and for care, family meant everything to them. This is easy to see when you read newspapers published during slave times. Many newspapers have runaway advertisements for slaves, and they'll talk in there about how, you know, this particular person was running away to, to find her husband who had been sold, you know, a month ago or who had been sold to Alabama or who had been sold to Texas. So you see evidence about what marriage meant through runaway advertisements that mention that they're looking to connect with relatives. Barry says the importance of marriage bonds could also be seen once enslaved people were freed. Some of the things that they tried to do immediately was, one, to solidify their unions. A number of them went to justices of the peace. They wanted to have ceremonies. They wanted to be married, and they wanted the certificate. Given the obstacles enslaved people face as they sought to form and maintain family bonds, Paula Penn Nabritt says it's incredibly powerful for African Americans to choose to marry even today. The fact that her own family members have opted to marry and stay married as far back as she can trace their history speaks to the power of that choice. One of the photos that Paula submitted to Historically Black features her mother and father on their wedding day. The year is 1950, and Paula's mother, Mildred Penn, is wearing a long white gown and matching veil. 
She and the groom are cutting a four-layered wedding cake. Mildred says she met her husband, Washington L. Penn, at the Pentecostal church she attended in Columbus, Ohio. He came to visit the church one Sunday, and on his second visit, she was ready for him. I stood outside the doorway because this was a young man who had on a beautiful cashmere sweater and argyle socks, and I met him at the door and introduced myself because I thought he was from a family that had money because he was so well-dressed. But come to find out, he wasn't. (laughs) Mildred and Washington soon began dating, and within a year, they decided to marry. Mildred was 19. Washington had faced fierce racism and exclusion growing up in Youngstown, Ohio. It was also bad when he returned home from World War II, where he served in the Army. Washington attended Ohio State University on the GI Bill, though as a black man, he was barred from living on campus. He continued to face barriers when he began looking for work. Even with his college degree, he still had had a terrible time finding a good job. Black men just were not hired for positions. They were hired for jobs. And I will never forget when he was offered a job running the elevator at the union store downtown. That was the best they could do for him. Paula says her parents' marriage kept her father from going crazy in a racist world. Quite frankly, if it hadn't been for my mother, my father would have been in a constant state of rage. It's hard for a black woman, but it's so much harder for a black man. And I think black women, I think to most part, realize this. That rage that builds up inside of a black man. Here I am, I'm supposed to be taking care of my family, and I can't even get a decent job. How does a black man cope with that over and over and over again? I can remember a couple of times when he was going off, my mother, we'd be in public, and my mother would try to help him calm down in his line that we laugh about now is when he would say, don't ever interrupt me when I'm correcting the white man. (laughs) Washington held several different jobs, including with the state of Ohio. Then he became a manager at Western Electric. Mildred had a full-time job with the Defense Department. Mildred says Washington was adamant that their children be able to have everything white children had. He insisted on taking them ice skating, something they had never seen black people do, and staying in places like the Plaza Hotel in New York. In his mind, I think because of what he had gone through, he didn't want his children to have to be deprived of anything that was out there for them. They could get it. Mildred didn't feel as driven as Washington to offer their children what white kids had, but because she was married to him and because she loved him, she supported that vision completely. Washington supported Mildred, too, and that mutual respect, she says, was the foundation of their bond. We're a family that's very strong. Even today, we've been having dinner together, going to church together as a family every Sunday for for 40 years. (laughs) Mildred and Washington Penn were married for 64 years until Washington died in 2014. Historian Dinah Berry says strong Black relationships like the one shared by Mildred and Washington have existed across the centuries. There are African-American couples that have been married 70-plus years that are alive today. Um, But marriage is complex, just as relationships are. And the complexities of Black love and marriage shows up in slavery and in freedom. When I was very young, I made the decision that when I grew up, I was going to write this genre of novel, but with black characters. So no future people would have to imagine themselves as the black versions of anything. Publishing is a largely white industry, and the characters that make sense a lot of the times to many of these editors, the black characters that make sense to them, are ones that are operating through the lens of some sort of struggle or oppression. That feels readily marketable. 
Like, it just didn't make sense. Like, do black people like this exist even? Who do we sell this to? I mean, I think it's just you don't know any black people and it's obvious. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you if you had spent some time around black people or you had a black person in your family or anything, you would understand that we have layers, too. I also think that just on a subconscious level, Black love and black sex makes people nervous still. It's the classic ages old archetype of predatory black sexuality. And it's attached to black men and it's attached to black women. Everyone was terrified of like this big black buck you know, taking their white women, and then black women, you know, they're kind of sex objects. That's a place where they, they make the black man look like a savage rapist. And white women committing suicide, jumping over cliffs to avoid a black man that's chasing her. Our families were very knitted together, and we got to help one another. And so if one family member or fam part of our family was down, my parents would help them. And if my parents were down... And that brings us down, back to the question, you know, someone why would help don't us. we see more of these love and stories so in popular marriage books, helped movies, and television? Community and family this is Tracy, in the black and I'm going to pop out of my love bubble for a moment to explore deep. this question. And One person meaningful. who's thought a lot about this is Tia Williams. When Candy Williams. was a girl, she, she looked forward to getting novels. married and creating Williams that Williams was always a fan of herself. big, juicy love stories and so written when by authors like Jackie I realized Collins that I was Krantz. gay or I was a lesbian. And she read them, she would reimagine the white characters that was not possible for me. It was the... It was probably one of the most devastating notions that I've ever had in my life. That I would not be able to get married because I was a lesbian. When Williams Candy was 24, she had Reverend her first Darlene breakout success with The Accidental Diva. Darlene she published was several other books after Church that. Northern Virginia, but as money began to dry up in the publishing the world, she hit a wall. They became a couple in 1996. They never thought marriage was a possibility. Before they met in 1994, Candy and Darlene were each in different phases of their journey to come out as a lesbian. 
Candy says she grew up with a certain amount of denial about her sexual identity and was engaged to men five times. What doesn't feel marketable to these publishers, never felt right, says. Our books By the about time she met Darlene, she had black. come out to a number of she people, pitched a romance novel about two characters, Something changed, Jenna though, and Eric, as her relationship with Darlene blossomed. None of them directly related when to Candy's race. father died, there Publishers was no doubt that Darlene would accompany her to his funeral. Candy spoke to family members just before the funeral began. And I asked them, Williams said, finally reached out to an independent publisher, Brown Girls Books, which is run by true. two successful Tell black authors. If someone asks, she quickly if got I'm a book gay, deal. Say yes. Williams published ashamed, The Perfect Find in the Spring of 2016. It became a bestseller and won Best Fiction at the African American Literary Awards. For Williams, it's not that all white publishers are necessarily racist. And it was deep, and it was worth standing up for. Darlene is 68 and grew up in Columbus, Ohio. When she came out as a lesbian in the early 1970s, she decided to break from the church in which she Part was of the raised. problem is the lack of diversity I was in, in the, the National room Baptist decide Church, what gets produced which is and what doesn't. a historically But Williams and others say there's something else at play, too. And I remember when I was around 10 years old, my favorite Sunday school teacher had been called into the front of the church. The representation the of black sexuality has a Sunday long morning. and troubled history in American and popular culture. She was out. That history still shapes what we see today. On the suspicion that she might be a lesbian, and I remember my own sense of horror, even at ten years of age, without any clear sense of my own identity how unjust and mean and non-Christian that act was. When I got One of older the most infamous examples of the predatory black male and mass culture is a 1915 silent film, The Birth of a Nation. A it was directed by D.W. Griffin. I remembered that moment, and I said to myself and God and every other strong person I could The Birth of a Nation is a fictional of, account of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War. To me. Brave and white so men formed the KKK in order to protect shame, the innocence of white women. I just disappeared from the National Baptist Church. For both Candy and Darlene, trying to find a church community that embraced who they were as gay black women was challenging. As they both point out, the film the black was a church huge has traditionally hit. been It was the, the first motion picture screened at the White House, the and it helped solidify the stereotype of sex-crazed black men at the height of Jim Crow segregation. Where we can go in order to have the fullness of our humanity Of course, affirmed. mainstream depictions For black of black members love of the and sexuality LGBT have evolved however, since then. That one place African-American writers, producers, and directors when have you a voice now in Hollywood. Same gender loving, if sometimes you find just the a church to also be a place Many more well-rounded and nuanced portraits of black Americans exist in popular culture. By and large, a century after the, the White House showcased is the birth of a nation, President Barack Obama and his wife, LGBT, Michelle, set a very different tone in their choice and in of movies. in particular, screens. those of us who they selected dare films that to honor black lives. Or dare to from love. 42, about the baseball great the Jackie Robinson, to hidden figures about black women who did the math to land a man on the moon. Candy Holmes and Darlene Garner now regardless have a of what was playing on the big screen or the small screen or what's featured in romance gay novels. Black women. African and on March 9th, always 2010, married. they made news even when it was one of the first same-sex couples this to marry. This brings us to the final love story of our show, one where the couple Candy has faced another Reverend Candy Holmes lives in Maryland. She's a minister with they never dreamed getting married was a possibility, or in Candy and Darlene leapt a welcoming, progressive denomination. Growing up in Washington, D.C., Candy saw marriage as the cornerstone of her parents' wedding to historically black. She wrote that black love is revolutionary. It's taking a stand against everything that life has thrown at black people for centuries. To stand in, in the midst of that and say, you know what, here we are, we're strong, we're proud, we love each other. No matter what, we are together and we love each other. Reverend Darlene Garner. Historically, it is significant that black people are able to exercise choice. We can choose to marry and choose who to marry. There was a time in our history where that choice was denied to people of African descent. It's revolutionary that only for 10 years anywhere in this country could two people of the same gender 
expressed their love and lifetime commitment to each other by getting married. The revolution continues, and we're part of it. That story was narrated by Heben Nagatu and Tracy Clayton. African-American history has often been treated as an afterthought in this country, an asterisk, relegated to one month a year and the shortest month at that. But as the nation continues to debate its core values, this history has potent lessons to teach. I pass often by the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture, and every time I do, I feel a little emotional jolt. Everything about that building screams, I, too, am America. You've been listening to Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. This program was produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. We had production help from Kai Thomas, Mitch Hanley, Larissa Anderson, Ryan Katz, Suzanne Pico, Andy Cruz, Johnny Vince Evans, Steve Griffith, and Corey Schreppel. The Post staff includes Veronica Tony, Jessica Stahl, Julia Carpenter, Tanya Suchinski, and Tahid Chappelle. Our theme music is by X144. You can hear all the episodes in our Historically Black series at our website, apmreports.org. You can see photos from the project and explore a timeline that shows where these stories fit in American history. Visit apmreports.org. I'm Michelle Norris. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.